Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, Christocentric, based out of our study on the book of Philippians. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit christianrenewalhhi.org. So Lord, we ask that you would speak. As we study your word this morning, we believe it's holy, infallible, inspired. This is your word. We ask that you would speak through it. We ask that you would be alive and well in the service that every heart would sense the voice of the Holy Spirit. Wash me, God. Cleanse me. Guard my lips. We know you're in our midst this morning, God. This time is yours. Amen. Amen. Somebody say amen. 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 Andrew Murray, uh, I read a bit of Andrew Murray when I was younger and was thinking about him this week. He was a um, Dutch Reformed pastor, primarily worked the entirety of his life in South Africa, um, preaching, praying, leading, and evangelism. Um, but Andrew Murray um, wrote a ton. You can find a ton of his books on um, on the interweb, on Amazon, or whatever you're looking at. Um, but wrote on on prayer, he wrote on evangelism. Um, and his insights into the scriptures were rich. When you read Murray, he's not necessarily easy to read, but when you read him, it's one of those people that you're like, how did I never see that before? There's just real depth and clarity. He clearly had a, a deep, intimate knowing of God. And it was popular in Andrew Murray's day to, um, for the great men of the Spirit to write um, kind of spiritual autobiographies, to write about their life, to write... Um, about their spiritual success, what God has done in them and through them. Um, and people kept asking Murray to write a kind of spiritual autobiography. And um, Murray kept declining. Over and over they ask Andrew Murray to write something. Give us some insight into your spiritual success. What's the secret to your faith? And over and over Murray declines. Pastors asked Murray to write. Um, his own daughter asked him to write on his devotional life. Would you write on your devotional life? Um, and Murray said, no, over and over, I will not write on my own life. He said, um, I refuse to write any book about myself. Every book I write will be about Jesus and for Jesus's glory. I will not write a book about my own successes and my own um, goodness, essentially. He said, I, I refuse to do that. Every book will be about Jesus. And so one day he's in a conference and he gets cornered with this kind of question. What is the key to your spiritual depth? Um, and, and, and he kind of awkwardly responded. I was reading the response this week and it's not incredibly clear. Um, but what he said was simply this. He kind of stumbled into this phrase. He said, as a young minister, I knew that I lacked God's power and presence but over time, God seemed to be giving me a greater measure of understanding and intimacy with his spirit. He said, it happened slowly and subtly, so slowly and subtly that I wasn't even aware at the time that God was growing me up. It's almost the idea of not realizing you're getting fat until you go to your grandma's house who doesn't have a filter. And she just tells you, boy, you're getting fat. Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me. You just thought your jeans were getting smaller. He said, God was always working, always speaking, always leading me. I just wasn't necessarily aware of it. And he said, um, 
to the crowd as they ask him, they're asking him, give us some secret to your spirituality. And he says, the secret is that God is always working. He says, in actuality, you're asking me for a secret because you don't believe that God is working. You don't trust God. And then he said that, um, he's kind of frustrated with their asking, how have you gone so deep with God? Um, and he says, God is the craftsman. The only responsibility you have is to stay under his hand. He says, referring to God's work in us. If that piece of work, the work within us, is to be perfect, every stitch must be in its place. So remember that not one minute of your life should be without God. We often want God to come in at a certain time, say in the morning. Then we are content to live two or three hours on our own. And then he can come in again. And he says, no, God must be every moment the worker in your soul. Says God is the potter who's molded the clay of my life. Therefore, God gets the glory. Again, it's a, kind of a subtle rebuke. Give us some spiritual secret. And he says, no, everything good in me is from God. Everything successful. If there's any spiritual depth in me, God has done it in me. God is the one who has given it to me. It's God's work. And so I'm not going to stand here and boast about all my great deep spiritual insight. If I have it, it's from God. And if you want it. Sit under God. And I think Murray's unwillingness to boast in himself led to this kind of stumbling response. But it may be the very thing that caused him with, to withdraw from boasting that was the secret to his success. He refused to boast, but as you kind of pay attention to his theology and his writing, you realize that to Murray, humility was this kind of core, central, theological theme. And any man or woman of God who is going to be great in the kingdom to Andrew Murray, he must fully embrace humility. He must make all of his spiritual life about getting low, getting very low, refusing to boast. And so they say to Andrew Murray, boast to us about your greatness. And he says, no, it was all God. It's all God. And as you... um Again, he's written so much on prayer. I have a fat book on prayer from him in my office that's beautiful and deep. Um, but he wrote this one book called Humility, The Beauty of Holiness. It's like 70 pages. I looked over it, skimmed it again this week, and was so deeply convicted. He became really popular in holiness circles, and he taught that humility was the foundation to all holiness. He believed and taught that the Christian life is to be lived totally dependent on God. And he drew this from the life of Jesus where Jesus says, I have not come on my own accord. My teaching is not mine. I do not seek glory from men, but glory from the Father. I only say to you what I hear. Murray says that all of Jesus' life is this process of intimate dependence upon God. Jesus says, everything I speak, I hear from the Father. This isn't coming from me. It's coming from God. I am dependent upon God. Murray said that you have to learn to trust God for guidance, lean on God for strength, and then you give him praise for all of your success. Everything that is accomplished through you for the kingdom, you acknowledge that it was God's work. God caused, planted the seed, watered the seed, caused the thing to grow. It's dependence upon God. It's humility. He says, anything in me that is worth anything is directly from the Father. He says in that little book, Humility, he says, 
Here's the path of the higher life. Down, lower down. Just as water always seeks to fill the lowest place, so the moment God finds men abased and empty, His glory and power flow in to exalt and bless. Here's the path to the higher life. Down, lower down. He says, being filled with the Spirit is simply this, having my whole nature yielded to His power. When the whole soul is yielded to the Holy Spirit, God Himself will fill it. He says, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. I think Murray tapped into a biblical theme that we kind of graze over. He says, humility is the center of Christ's personality. The center of Christ's life. The center of Christ's death. He says, to really know and love Jesus, you must know and love humility. Meekness, lowliness of heart. This is what Paul wants the Philippians to see now as we begin Philippians chapter 2. Paul has told us in chapter 1 that there's a chance that he's going to be executed in the future. He's told us in chapter 1 that he really loves the Philippian church. They're dear to his heart. He told the Philippian church in chapter 1 that they would have to learn to endure persecution and hardship. It's possible that in the near future they will not have the direct oversight of Paul. And he told them in the previous chapter that they'll have to persevere through all of the struggles and all of the trials. And in order to persevere, he'll tell us this morning, that they'll have to learn to work together, to lean on one another, to remain unified. Simply put, what Paul is saying in the large context of Philippians this morning is that the Philippian church will not thrive without Paul around unless she learns unity. And so he's saying this, you must persevere through hardships, persecutions, and trials. If you want to persevere, you must remain unified. And if you want to remain unified, you better learn humility. You have to persevere. To persevere, you have to remain unified. You'll need unity to persevere through what's coming. And if you're going to remain unified, every one of you must learn humility. That's the teaching of Philippians chapter 2. Now Paul's going to do it in this poetic, theological way that we'll dive into in just a moment. But if we want to be a church and a people who persevere through all of the trials that are to come. How many know there's going to be some trials to come our way? We might have national trials and struggle in the future. But we desire to persevere through all of that. We want to persevere in our mission to see this community really come to know and experience the beauty and power of Jesus. If we want to persevere, we'll have to remember unified and if we want to remain unified we'll have to learn humility every one of us will have to learn humility if any of us begin to think that this is about any one single person being seen heard being the center of attention this will fragment fracture and fall apart the the teaching that we'll dive into this morning in just a moment is that pride always comes before fall pride is before fall the principle applies to churches too when a church embraces pride sooner or later it'll fragment and fall apart But if a church can dig deeper, get lower, empty self, always prefer one another, not ache and desire the glory that's from men. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. You can't even know me because you just walk around aching and desire the glory that's from other men. But I'm not after your glory or affirmation. I'm only after the affirmation of the Father. 
And when a church gets to that place of real emptying of ourselves, loving and preferring one another, then unity is natural. And when unity is natural, a church will persevere. This passage matters to us this morning. So let's read Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 11 this morning. I was right about that. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul just said, complete my joy by living in unity. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now in verse 6, we're going to enter into what's clearly, um, most scholars believe was a first century hymn. Paul is quoting some form of poetry from verse 6 on, and, and, and there's an argument about whether or not Paul wrote this, this hymn, this form of poetry, um, but it's important to note that it is, he is quoting a hymn, um, an early church song. Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, we've talked about this passage a lot in the last year. We've skimmed over it quite a few times. And um, so today I want to approach it from largely a theological perspective. And I think that's really what Paul intends. So we're going to look at it from kind of a zoomed out lens here for a moment. Everybody in my family's got a cough, man. Those kids eating their boogers and passing them around, what does it? My, my middle kid is three and she said the other day, Daddy... Boogers are my favorite snack. <laughs> I said, you're my kid for sure. A little weird thing. A little weird kid. That's gross, man. Y'all, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm talking now. When I was, you, you guys remember I went to South Africa for, for a funeral, and I was laying in bed jet lag one night, and I couldn't sleep, and I opened up my phone. And I was looking through videos of my kids because, you know, I didn't have internet or anything. So I was watching videos of my kids. And I found this video that one of my daughters made. I'm not going to tell you which one. Of just her. She's just videoing herself. And she's picking boogers. And it's like super snotty. And then she's putting it in her mouth. Just this long video. I'll email it to you this week. It's great. I don't think that was from the Holy Spirit. That was just from here. first thing that Paul wants you to notice is that it's actually humility that initiated our redemption. Paul's making a profound point here about Jesus. It's that Jesus's willingness to humble himself is the foundation of your salvation. It's not Jesus's boldness, courage, even holiness in the sense that he's perfectly pure and without sin. He's all that in heaven and on the throne. It's his humility, his willingness to be born of a woman, of a virgin, 
Jesus' incarnation is the humility of heaven. God's willingness to become man. If Christ lacked humility, you and I would be headed for hell. Don't you love humility this morning? Christ's humility and his lowliness is the unique, specific, characteristic trait of Jesus that brought about your salvation. It's that humility that was required for him to step down from heaven and be born of a virgin. The scripture says what we just read, that throughout his life he was found in the form of man and he became a servant. So not only was he born of human flesh, but he wasn't born as a king or a priest. He had no significance about him. He wasn't even born beautiful or wonderful Isaiah tells us there was nothing about his physical man that was attractive. He was born a more a completely normal man, born in a manger of a poor family. He lived life as a servant, not as a king. And then he died a cruel and harsh death. So humbled to become a man and then humbled even more to become a servant and then humbled even more to die the death of a sinner. It's this most unique trait in Jesus' person that offered you atonement. If our God did not possess within his character humility, we would be doomed for hell. Think on it for a moment. The king of heaven born in a manger traded the praise of the angelic host who cried, holy, holy, holy. He traded it for the insults of arrogant men. He gave up his comfort for the nails of a Roman cross. He traded his heavenly crown for a crown of thorns to be spit on, mock struck across his holy face. He endured extreme humiliation, agony, and he chose it. He chose that humiliation. He chose that agony. He chose to allow men and women to spit in his face to mock him. He chose humiliation on your behalf. Had he not, we would be headed for eternal punishment. When you look closely at this first century hymn, what you find is that the text, the hymn, is playing with the idea of Adam and Eve's desire to be like God. It was that craving to glorify self that led to the brokenness of humanity. Most believe from Isaiah chapter 14 that pride is what caused Satan to fall. That Satan, as an angelic being, thought to himself, I will climb up the the ladder. I will pull myself up to God-like status. And as Satan tried to pull himself up to God-like status in pride, God struck him down. And Satan's pride came before Satan's fall. And Satan, in the Garden of Eden, in Murray's words, breathes his pride into Adam and Eve when he says, if you eat this fruit, you will be godlike. If you eat the fruit, you could pull yourself up to be like God. So the hymn says, essentially what the hymn is communicating, is that Satan attempted to be godlike in pride. And Adam and Eve attempted to be godlike in pride. They tried to pull themselves up to godlike status. But Jesus 
was in the form of God. Jesus did not try to pull himself up in pride to be God-like. Jesus was God-like and in humility pushed himself down. And so Adam and Eve's pride breathed into their lungs from Satan, poisoned humanity, and you and I struggle with sin. It's deep within us. We suffer from sickness, disease, and ailment. We struggle and wrestle with the effects originally of pride. And Jesus, who was in the form of God, who was completely and totally God. Hebrews 1, he's the exact nature of God. That's a clear teaching of Scripture. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Jesus was in the form of God. And even Jesus, as a second person of the Trinity, God does not cling to his own rights, but he humbles himself. And so... Satan introduced into the earth pride, and pride destroyed everything about us. And Christ brought for us humility again. Christ brought heavenly humility back to the earth through his incarnation. Humility is the aroma of heaven, and pride is the aroma of hell. Satan brings pride to the earth, Jesus brings humility to the earth. The hymn shows that Jesus brings us life by reversing that entire narrative. Man trying to pull himself up to be God. God pushing himself down, emptying himself to be found in the likeness of men. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Again, humility is that central trait of Jesus that offers us redemption. Think on it. Meditate on it. How much do you love humility this morning? How much do you savor Christ-like humility? How much do you love the character of Jesus who said, Learn from me. I'm lowly and meek. Learn. You learn from me. I am lowly, meek. He brought from us from heaven the very thing that we lost in Eden. Humility. Humility birthed Christianity and humility is the foundation of our faith. For a church to embrace pride is counterintuitive. It's the very core. It's to abandon the very core of her being. And will naturally begin her fall. So first humility initiated our redemption. Jesus humbled himself. Praise God. It was the humbling of himself that initiated our own redemption. Humbled himself by becoming a man. Humbled himself by becoming a servant. Humbled himself by dying a cruel and harsh death. That initiated our redemption. Next, from a completely theological perspective, humility will be the trait which allows us to receive our redemption. Humility working together with faith. You cannot come to Jesus without acknowledging your own lowliness. There is no proud man or woman in heaven. No one boasts in heaven. No one gets to heaven and says, I made it. I was so righteous. God does not allow anyone in heaven to receive glory except Jesus alone. No one will stand, enter the heavenly gates and stand before angelic host and say, I was that good. I made it. No, every person in heaven will say, thank you, Jesus. You're so good. 
Pride wants to look God in the face and say, you owe me heaven. I'm like you. Humility says, you don't owe me a thing, and I am not like you at all. I am broken, weak, I have lied, stolen, cheated, thought, thoughts that are so offensive to your perfectly holy nature. You are just perfect, righteous. I am a sinner. I am not like you. You owe me nothing. Humility. Remember Jesus saying in the Beatitudes, we studied this earlier this year, that the poor in spirit, to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit earth, the earth. The poor in spirit. It is a requirement for salvation that you acknowledge that within yourself you have nothing good to offer. That you acknowledge that you cannot earn heaven. So the humility of Jesus initiated our salvation. We receive salvation through humility. Lowering ourselves. The teaching of Paul is simply... No man goes to heaven without acknowledging that he needs a savior. No man enters heaven's gates by trusting in his own abilities, his own righteousness, his own goodness. Only those who come to God empty. Only those who embrace poorness. No man, listen to me for a moment. No man or woman who thinks he or she is sufficient for heaven is sufficient for heaven. No man or woman who thinks that he or she is sufficient for heaven is sufficient for heaven. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that every true Christian is surprised that he is a Christian. Meaning that every true Christian is shocked that God is so gracious to allow me to grace his holy presence. Every Christian is shocked that God is that merciful. Murray concludes that pride renders faith impossible. It is impossible to have faith in the work of Jesus if you're putting your trust in your own work. Jesus allows no self-exaltation in the kingdom. That's why a gospel of works is so offensive um, to to the scriptures. So Jesus' humility initiated the salvation process for us, and we are required to embrace humility, poorness, lowliness of spirit in order to grasp salvation. And third, simply, this is the simple conclusion. The Christian matures only as he or she matures in humility. Only the humble will be exalted. Luke 14, 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. No man or woman in any church who exalts himself will stay there for long. That is a promise of scripture. If you exalt yourself, God will cut you down. God humbles every man or woman who exalts themselves. He will cut you down from your high place if you reject humility. God only exalts those who embrace humility. God only uses those who embody humility. That's a promise of Scripture. If you want anointing this morning, you'll have to learn to love humility. If you want intimacy with God this morning, you'll have to learn to love humility. If you want God to use you in power in this community this morning, you'll have to learn to love humility. Humility. 
God will not anoint arrogance. He will have nothing to do with it. God will not bless pride. It is a foul stench in his nostrils. God will not embrace arrogance. You'll have to learn to love humility if you want to excel in the gospel. This is what the hymn is saying. Who will be exalted above all else in heaven? Who is given the name which is above all names in heaven? Jesus. Philippians 2, 8 and 9. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This principle exists even within heaven, even within the Trinity. Jesus has humbled himself Far beyond any other. Jesus has humbled himself becoming a man. He has emptied himself. And therefore God says now your name will be the name which is above every name. The the reason we will all praise and worship and exalt the name of Jesus in heaven. Is because Jesus is the one who humbled himself the most. He's the extremely humble one. When Jesus says the greatest in the kingdom of heaven are the servant of all. He means that about himself too. He is the servant of all. Therefore, he is the most highly exalted. He says to disciples over and over and over. If you want to be great. Be the servant. If you want to be first. Be the last. He is the model of humility. He is the model of the exalted one in the kingdom. Jesus models for us what the height of spirituality is. I'm so convicted this week as I thought along these principles. The height of spirituality is emptying yourself. The height of knowing Jesus, looking like Jesus, is making yourself low, being willing to serve. Being okay with being perceived as less than. Not being infatuated with your own reputation. Not being obsessed with people recognizing your giftings or your strengths. But always daily lowering yourself. Being obsessed with loving other people. Being obsessed with caring for others' needs. Always being willing to take the back seat in order to let someone else shine. Humility is... um, Not self-centered. At some point we have to look at ourselves long and hard. And realize that we are so full of ourselves. That we can never be full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is rightfully God. Yet chooses humanity. Rightfully the king of heaven. Yet chooses to serve. Rightfully the judge of the universe. Yet allows fallen men to condemn him. Drive nails to his hands and his feet. And so Paul, following Jesus, says, I am nothing. Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the least of the apostles. I'm dead to the world. Paul, many would say, is the most spiritual 
man, the greatest spiritual giant of the New Testament, and he continually prefers others. I'm the least of the apostles. Now, you could say with modern teachers that you don't embrace false humility. And I get what we're trying to say. That's like a bit of a theme in every book I read. It talks about false humility. Um, And I understand what we mean by that. We mean that if you're brilliant, don't walk around saying, oh, I'm so dumb. If you're beautiful like me, you don't walk around saying, I'm so ugly. You just say, I'm hot. Somebody said, that boy's going to fall. That was some pride there. <laughs> and, and I agree, humility is not extreme self-criticism. But it is self-denial. It is self-denial. And, and, and remember this. On the night of Jesus' betrayal, he's sitting in the room with the disciples. And um, we know from history that the lowest servant of the house, the least person on the totem pole, it was their job to wash the feet of the visitors of the house because, um, you know, you're wearing sandals in dusty areas where animals do what animals do. And between your toes was a thing that we scientifically called feces, okay? Um, all between the toes. That means poop, y'all. Y'all are like, what does that mean? Um, and so the lowest servant of the house was supposed to get down and wash the dirt and the muck and the mud and the grime off of the guest's um, off of the guest's feet. And so Jesus, this night, there was no servant in the house. Um, and, I, and I want you to notice this. I want you to pay attention to this because it blares in the face of what our idea of false humility is. Um, Jesus was actually the wisest man in the room. He could have said, no, I'm, 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 actually the, I'm actually the wisest here, so you guys can do the feet washing thing. Jesus actually had the most leadership in the room. He could have said, my time is actually better spent talking about strategy because I know more about leadership than you. He had the greatest gifting in the room, the greatest anointing to heal. He could have said, no, you wash feet, I heal the sick. He had every reason to say, no, I am the rightful leader. I'm not going to be falsely humble and get down and wash your feet. But Jesus understood that what makes you great in the kingdom of God is not your leadership skills. What makes you great in the kingdom of God is not your charisma. It's not your wisdom. The greatest in the kingdom of God are not the successful, not the gifted. The greatest in the kingdom of God are not the biggest personalities in the room. The greatest in the kingdom of God are those who choose the lowest seat. So Jesus had every right to say, no, I am, if we're all being honest here, I'm the greatest in the room, so I'm not going to do that. But Jesus says, no, actually, that's what the greatest in the room do. They get lower, humble themselves. If you want to excel in the Christian life, you will begin to hunger and thirst for humility. Love humility. You will daily attempt to lower yourself to serve others, and to see others thrive. There is no spirit of competition in the kingdom. Spirit of competition flourishes in arrogance and pride. In the kingdom, it's not my goal to outdo you, outrun you, look smarter than you, dress better than you. In the kingdom, it's my goal to see you exceed and flourish and run. In the kingdom, I'm not competing with the church down the street. In the kingdom, I'm serving. How can I assist? I'm praying for and blessing In the kingdom, life is not all about me. 
Life is about emptying myself to serve other people. In this church, our church life cannot be all about one of us or the most gifted or the smartest. Our church life has to be about getting low and serving one another and loving one another and honoring honoring one another. In our church life, we don't need to be the first to speak all the time. Sometimes we might have something to say, but you bite your tongue because you want someone else to be heard. If we want to excel in reaching this community with the gospel, we might start with looking like the savior of the gospel. What makes Jesus so incredibly attractive is that he is fully God, yet meek and low and humble. And that that's not normal. You don't find, forgive me, you don't find humility and meekness in Muhammad. You don't. You don't find this kind of lowliness and willingness to give of yourself for other people um, in, in other gods, especially in pagan gods whose entire idea of what humanity was for was to serve them. No, in Christianity, the God actually, the chief being actually serves us. It's Jesus' humility that makes him so attractive. It's the same thing that makes the church attractive. And so in a Matthew, in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. If we are not gentle and lowly in heart, we are not learning from Jesus. Hear me, let that pierce your heart. If you are not gentle and lowly of heart, you are not Christ-like. And everything in our society says we need to be bold and we need to be courageous and we need to be outspoken. And those things, there's a time and a place for all of that. And boldness, I do think, is an aspect of the Christian life, but it is not unique to the Christian life. Every secular coach, life coach, is telling people to be bold. What's unique to Christianity is gentleness, lowliness, meekness, and humility. That is the chief trait of Christianity. It's the chief characteristic of Jesus. It's what made him so different. It's what saved you. It's what's required of you in order to be saved. It is what's required of you in order to excel in the Christian life. Humility. If you do not embrace humility, you are not embracing the very foundation of Christianity. How arrogant are you this morning? How self-consumed are you this morning? How much is life really about you? How much do you crave being seen? And if you're being honest, that's in you. And if I'm being honest, that is daily in me. And so my life has to be filled with this daily crucifying of flesh, willing to get low, willing to not be seen, willing to be misunderstood and mocked. And if I can't do that, then I am not Christ-like. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and come. And so what Paul is saying to the Philippian church is it's my deep desire that you persevere. But in order to persevere, you'll have to remain unified. And if you can't find humility, you will fall. If you don't learn to pursue humility, you are not Christ-like. You are not a representation of Christ's nature. And the enemy will chew you up and spit you out because pride is hellish. Your pride this morning is hellish. My pride this morning is hellish, destructive, 
leads to a falling. For us to embrace humility is to embrace the culture of heaven. And so as we pray, heaven come, we are praying humility come and rest among us. We are asking for heaven, heavenly humility to be embodied deep within us. So in conclusion, I just wrote this. Where's the modern teaching on humility? We talk so much about growing and gifting and anointing and power, but we have not talked much, as far as I'm concerned, about growing in humility. What does it mean? How do we practically grow in humility? How do we grow in lowliness? We haven't talked much about preferring one another. And in so doing, have we denied the most fundamental trait of our faith? The central characteristic of Jesus himself and what it means to be Jesus-like. Paul's point is plain. If the Philippian church does not embrace the humility of Jesus, pride will ruin them. Christian unity is totally formed upon the foundation of Christian humility. Christian unity is formed upon the foundation of Christian humility. Satan's strategies are not new. He whispers to Adam and Eve, you can be God-like. And he'll destroy us the same way. It's all about you. You, sh- you should be receiving more attention. They don't really recognize what they have in you. They, they, they're too dull to see how gifted you are. The moment we start to crave attention, value our giftings above others, we have bitten the bait of the enemy. Paul tells the Corinthian church, show honor to the weakest parts. Elevate the weakest among you. And again, Jesus is the wisest man in the room, yet chooses to become the lowest servant of the house. I'm not asking you how wise you are this morning. I'm not asking you how gifted you are. I'm not asking you how great of a singer you are this morning. If you are to be great in the kingdom, the question is how humble are you? How low are you willing to get? How much are you willing to serve? Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.